you will recall that last week we looked at three parables that Jesus taught in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mac, and I want to return to them again today so we can meditate further upon their meaning, and then to turn to the words of the Apostle Paul uh, from his letter, second letter to the Corinthians. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you have given your word with a capital W, the word of God, that our lives might be transformed and our lives find deeper meaning, that our hearts may be freed in the knowledge of your love and our spirits encouraged in your word of unconditional regard, abiding forgiveness, and your love which makes all things possible. Grant them that the words of our mouths and all that we say and offer in this time of worship, that they might truly be acceptable to you, pleasing to you. For you will find in them, we pray, a sincerity of purpose and a candor of expression and a deepening of commitment to you and to the way of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So from the second, uh, from the fourth chapter, rather, of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' favorite teaching method, which is to employ parables, stories that have a meaning that's not necessarily immediately apparent, uh, that requires and invites a deeper reflection upon sometimes seemingly inscrutable sayings. He teaches in this way so that the hearer, both in the first century and during his own lifetime and today, generations and centuries removed, we might also be engaged. The Bible is not a cookbook. It's not full of explicit directions and how to live your life step by step. It's more subtle and therefore more powerful. Now, to follow a cookbook will yet render that which was promised by the author of the cookbook if we follow the steps carefully, but it will only render that which the original author intended. The Bible, on the other hand, invites us to be our authentic selves, to free us from the expectations that are imposed upon us by others, to understand ourselves to be unique in a relationship with God, to be beloved of God, to embrace our dignity, and thereby our place of honor in God's beloved creation, to embrace both the authority and the responsibility to be our true selves. Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the remarkable theologian and martyr for the Christian faith, German Lutheran theologian who was executed by the Nazis in 1945, for his opposition to the Nazi regime and its theology of death and practice of 
the great annihilation that beset Europe between the years 1933 and 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that Jesus did not come to help us transcend our humanity. Jesus came to help us become truly human, to become our truest selves, to embrace our unique identity and to honor our inherent dignity as a child of God. So then, from Mark 4, beginning at verse 26, Jesus said, the kingdom of God as is It is as if someone would scatter seed upon the ground and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow. The farmer does not know how. The earth produces of itself, first the stock and then the head and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once the farmer goes in with the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus then said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds upon the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all the shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables and explained everything in private to his disciples. Amen. Now we looked at these two parables last week and again I invite you to meditate upon them in your own life to consider the way in which the seed that seemingly grows secretly, the farmer knows not how and yet yields this marvelous head of grain. And the mustard seed, the tiniest, which would grow up to be the greatest of all the shrubs. Certainly, Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples, to us today, that how things work in life is largely beyond our ken. We cannot know how the world works fully. We can know a lot. Reason, of course, the mind, science, experimentation, hypotheses, conclusions. The senses yield the knowledge that they can bring to us. Yet we all know, if we are humble enough to do so, We all know that there is far more going on in creation than our minds can possibly understand or explain, and there is more happening in the world around us than our sensorium would bring to our consciousness. Even within our own lives, there is that unconscious portion of ourselves of which we may be 
largely unaware, but is also largely operant in how we live. And so Jesus, I think, is calling us to a deep sense of humility in knowing that we are the creatures of a God, a creator, who is benevolent and loving, who provides everything that we need, doesn't provide everything that we want, although some of us, many of us, our culture suggests that we might possibly live as though we can have everything that we want, but when we do so, of course, many do not get what they need for living. But this God of benevolence, of a theology of abundance, which provides for all of God's creatures, to have the humility to understand that we are engaged with one who is far beyond us, who is totally, completely different from us, one upon whom we are dependent, but upon whom we can depend because God is faithful. This theology, of course, suffuses the scriptures and particularly the teachings of Jesus and is expressed in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, is the great apostle to the Gentile world. He is the one who takes the story of the life, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus and broadcasts it uh, to all the world, not simply to the Jews, of whom Jesus was a member of the great history of the covenant of God with the people of Israel, but now is an opening, a widening of that covenant, as was promised in Isaiah, that the covenant would be open to all God's people. And in opening that covenant to all God's people, Paul ceases, uh, seeks rather, Paul seeks to articulate in a way that is understandable for those not raised in the traditions of Judaism, the power of this resurrection event and its relationship that it establishes between this world and the next, or perhaps not the next, but between this visible world and the invisible world which exists along beside it, that which is present but not known to us. And how those of us who live in this visible world are somehow intimately, in a way we can never possibly understand, deeply connected to that invisible world in which we will finally find our truest selves. And so in the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a lot of conflict. The Corinthians, in fact, have begun to doubt Paul's authority to speak and to preach about Jesus. And he is writing in, in large measure to defend himself and his authority, having come directly from the resurrected Christ. And he's articulating here this idea which he expresses later in the, in the letter as this mortal nature must put on immortality in this Temporary nature must put on permanence that this which is fleeting will become eternal in heaven. And we can live in great assurance of this because of the resurrection of Christ. And then here in the 
fifth chapter, beginning at verse 6, he picks up. This is why this great assurance that the mortal nature must put on the immortal and this perishable nature must put on the imperishable. This is why we live with such good cheer, courage. You will not see us drooping our heads, dragging our feet. Cramped conditions here, limited prospects now, will not get us down. Trouble today will not defeat us. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions in the realm of God. It is what we trust in, but do not yet see, that keeps us going. Let me repeat that. It is what we trust in, but do not yet see, that keeps us going. Or in the words of the King James Version, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road, rocks in the path, impediments on our way are going to stop us? When the time comes, we will be ready to exchange exile for homecoming. When we will be rendered into the presence of God. It's that confidence that comes, not from what we see, but from the faith which instructs our lives because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says. For we walk not by sight, but by faith. It's very easy to become discouraged in life, yes? So many setbacks, so many disappointments, the way in which the world seems to be changing at a rate that is exponentially expanding, decreasing, all of the ways in which our lives have been turned upside down and inside out and back again in the last 16 months with the pandemic and the gross inequality revealed in the aftermath economically and the the rampant institutional endemic nature of systematic racism in our society, all the ills that have been revealed as we've pulled back the layers exposed by the outcome of the pandemic and its response, things, we, we feel discouraged. How will we carry on? But, says Paul, we do, because we know that God, even in the experience of Jesus, resting, lying, moldering in the tomb, and in the words of the Apostles' Creed, descending into hell, will be raised by God on the third day and descend into heaven, that is to say, into the presence of God, into the realm, the reign of God's justice and of God's peace. 
This is what makes it possible for us to carry on in the face of disappointment, discouragement, and the dis-ease with which we live so much of our lives. This past week, we have evidence of the power of people who band together to make a different world. First, the Clean Slate Bill, passed by the House and by the Senate of the General Assembly, was signed into law by Governor Lamont. It was years in the making. It was through dint of effort and persistence and commitment, largely from people of faith coming out of the churches, the synagogues, and the mosques of Connecticut, imploring, beseeching, and crafting with the members of the General Assembly a bill that will enable people, once they've paid their debt to society, to rebuild their lives. Or the fact that the General Assembly's bill was passed by the governor, which will provide for Bridgeport its fair share of state funding for education, which it has not received for generations because of the inequitable funding formula employed for all these years. Again, an act largely promulgated and promoted by citizens and people of faith, Faith Acts for Education, Connect, congregations organized for a new Connecticut with which we have worked have yielded these remarkable results in the face of surprisingly strident opponents. Margaret Mead said that never doubt that a small band of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, she said, it's the only thing that ever does. I love that. Never doubt that a small band of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever does. Her wisdom as an anthropologist, one who studied human cultures across the ages, and the wisdom of the Apostle Paul of never giving up because of the great promise that God is always with us and for us. Jesus' deep insight of the seed growing secretly, that we not become daunted and overwhelmed by the odds against us, but deepen our resolve and find in each other the courage and in our relationship with God, the power by which as members of a small band of thoughtful and created citizens, we can build a more just world, a new Connecticut. Thanks be to God. Amen.